Whenever a news event happens, reporters or even the police will always try to seek out eyewitnesses to the event. An eyewitness, somebody who was standing there when it happened and saw it all, any eyewitness will have experienced the event firsthand and will be able to furnish the most accurate description of what happened. During a trial in court, the eyewitness account, especially of a credible witness, will weigh heavily in the final decision of the jury. Now, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry were written for us by credible men who, for the most part, experienced these events firsthand or interviewed people who did. We'll look at three men today in their New Testament writings. They speak the words of truth and encourage us to believe the things that they wrote. So we're looking at eyewitnesses. And sometimes, you know, people will look at the Bible, especially those who are not Christian, and they'll think, well, who knows what you can believe? This is probably a lot of fairy tales and a lot of made-up stories. And sometimes even Christians have their doubts as to whether we can put full trust and hope in these words that we read. Well, we're going to look at three men today who encourage us and exhort us to believe what they have written. Now, we know that God has inspired it, but they, speaking from a first-hand perspective, keep telling us, listen, you can believe what I write because I was there. I saw it happen. Now, the first of these individuals we're going to look at is Luke, who authored not only the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. So let's turn to the book of Luke. We're going to look at chapter 1. Now, among the three witnesses that we're going to look at today, Luke did not personally encounter Jesus, but he was a respected physician. He was well-educated in Greek culture, also an historian. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul at various times during Paul's mission trips and a loyal friend of Paul's who stayed with him until Paul's martyrdom in Rome. So Luke... In contrast to the other two we'll discuss, Luke wasn't there with Jesus. He came a little bit later. But his testimony must be believed because he talked to people. He was an historian who was very uh, careful about his material that he eventually put in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. He was very fastidious about it. And he tells us that, you know, I spoke to these people personally. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He starts off that gospel of Luke by addressing it to the man who funded Luke's writing, funded Luke's research. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus was the man who gave Luke a grant of some kind so that Luke could take the time, and I'm sure it was years, 
to investigate as an historian, to interview people who actually walked with Jesus, who saw the miracles, and so on and so forth. Luke uh, was beholding to this man Theophilus. Obviously, Theophilus was a believer. His name means lover of God. We all know the word theos in Greek. It means God. And philia, you know, the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So philia, it means love. Theophilus is lover of God. So this man was a believer who wanted Luke to go ahead and produce this gospel account. He says in verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke is trying to encourage Theophilus. And he says, you know, you funded me to do this, and I produce now this gospel account, and you can be assured that the information in this gospel is accurate. So in the decades after Jesus ascended back to heaven, many individuals, Luke says here, both apostles and others attempted to write accounts of Jesus' life. So there were many accounts written. Now, God saw to it that only the ones we have in this Bible are the ones that were truly inspired, used by the church early on, and generally accepted to what we call the canon of the Bible, the accepted books of the Bible. So a lot of these other ones were kind of reference works. So out of all of the research he did, I'm sure he checked some of these written accounts. He also paid attention to oral traditions and oral memories that people had of what Jesus did and what he taught. So he relied on the accounts written by believers, as he calls them servants of the word, so they were believers. The Holy Spirit did not choose to preserve the other accounts. They're lost, and they're not considered genuine. So Luke had a lot of material to choose from as he wrote his gospel, as well as the book of Acts. So Luke, as a very detailed historian, sifted through all the material that he had, as well as interviewing eyewitnesses that were still alive. So can you imagine Luke going around to some of the people who had witnessed Jesus, who had lived with Jesus, who had seen what Jesus did? We don't know for sure, but very well, Luke could have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'm sure she lived on quite a few years after Jesus departed this earth. So when we read the stories in Luke about Jesus' birth, how do we know that that was the real story? How do we know that the shepherds saw the angels and got the report of the birth of this king and the, the uh, shepherds came to worship and then eventually the, uh, the magi, the kings, came to visit? Well, he could have well gotten that account from Mary herself. She could have told Luke the story of what exactly happened that night that Jesus was born. So can you imagine sitting down and speaking to Mary and getting the story firsthand? Who knows? He may have been able to interview the actual shepherds that saw the angels and came to, to visit uh, the newborn Christ child. Maybe Luke in, interviewed Nicodemus and got firsthand the story of his conversation with Jesus about being born again. So behind the scenes, you know, Luke was working very hard. He was interviewing. He was researching. He was taking all the material that was deemed uh, noteworthy and uh, accurate. 
and he put together his account. So Luke probably didn't see Jesus himself. He came by a little bit later, but he was, had available to him all of the people who did witness Jesus. His overall goal was to provide an account of Jesus' life that was exact in every historical detail and checked in every possible way. So Luke wanted to assure Theophilus and us <laughs> that we may know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. So we don't have to doubt, okay? So Luke is the first example, the first witness. I want to look at the second witness, and that is the Apostle John. Now, John was an apostle. He was one of the 12 who walked and talked with Jesus over the course of at least three and a half years. Let's turn to John. Well, we'll look not the Gospel of John, but the Epistles of John, 1 John, toward the back of your Bible there, just before Jude and Revelation. <clears throat> As I said, John was one of the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. And by the time of John's writing, there were problems cropping up because there were false teachings that were starting to affect some church members. False teachers came along and came up with some of their own ideas about Jesus. And the apostles, and John in this case, had to be very careful that these false teachings and heresies were squelched. That John corrected these teachings, warned the church members that these were false teachings, and did his best to clarify them or correct them. So at the time that John wrote, and he wrote much later, <clears throat> maybe as late as 90 AD or, or around that, that point, there was a teaching, a false teaching or a heresy called docetism. That's spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. It was confusing some church members. The name docetism comes from the Greek word for seeming, seeming. In other words, what the docetists taught was Jesus was not truly fully God and fully man. Because with their Gnostic teachings, they, they taught that anything about the human body is evil. So there's no way that God would ever come into a human body. Now, the nature of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is very important. It's very important. We believe in that. But these heretics were saying, no, Jesus was only like a ghost or a phantom. He only seemed to be human, and he really wasn't. So John knew that this was confusing church members, so he had to take a, a certain approach when it came to teaching about Jesus to really reassure us and to make sure we understood that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had two natures, okay? Because, first of all, the Son of God had to be human in order to, in order to die, to pay the penalty for all of our sins. But he also had to be fully God because he can never give up being God. You know, that is his, his original nature. So Jesus has two natures. So, in order for Jesus to be human, that meant that his death was real, that he truly did die for our sins and pay the penalty for us. As it says in Hebrews, I'm going to hold my place here and turn to Hebrews 9, verse 22. 
The Bible teaches and, and God teaches that in order for the penalty of sins to be paid, blood has to be shed. Blood has to be shed. So that made way for Jesus' death on the cross. It says in Hebrews 9, verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we know that in Old Testament times, the Israelites found forgiveness of sin by bringing animals to be sacrificed by the priest at the temple. And the animals were killed. Their blood was shed so that the Israelite sins can be forgiven. But that was only a type of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice, not for just an individual's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus had to be fully human as well as fully God. That death had to be real. It had to take place in order for our sins to be forgiven. If Jesus wasn't also fully man, and if he didn't truly die on the cross and suffer death, we're still lost in our sins. So John had to clarify this. So notice the way he taught about Jesus in 1 John 1 verse 1. He says, that which from the beginning, which we have heard, the story about Jesus, which we have seen with our own eyes. So John says, listen, believe what I say because I was there. I saw it. I saw this man. I saw what he taught, what he did. So he says, which we have seen with our, our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So he's telling his story about Jesus. And he says, you can believe me because I was there with the man. I witnessed everything. I was at his side in so many ways. So he viewed Jesus through the senses that we have. He said, listen, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. And not to not to be offensive or any, or any way, but you know, on a hot day in, in the Middle East when they were working hard or doing whatever, he may have even smelled him <laughs> because Jesus was fully human and fully God. So John says, listen, this is important. This is the way Jesus was. And it's important that you understand that and believe that because if he wasn't fully human, he could not have died on the cross truly, could not have shed his blood and if that's the case, then our sins are not forgiven. He goes on to say in verse 2, the life, referring to Jesus, the life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So that goes back to John's gospel, where he said at the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So you can tell the same man is writing both books, the Gospel of John and these epistles of John, because his approach is exactly the same. And when he talks about the life appeared, you know, when he talks about Jesus Christ, he's talking about not just his physical life, but eternal life. So that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what did he mean by that? Well, he's the source of eternal life. 
So you see, when we believe in him and when we worship him, we don't just ask to be blessed with a good physical life. Sure, we ask to be healed of our diseases and, you know, strengthened every day. That's good. But Jesus came to bring us more. He came to bring us eternal life. And that's what our future is. That's what we look forward to. When he returns, he's bringing with him our reward. We're going to be changed in the blink of an eye, as the scripture says. We're going to go from mortal to immortal. From this physical body that Paul called this wretched human body that feels all the pains and the discomforts and the weaknesses, we're going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as to Peter's witness about Jesus. So John talked about Jesus. He talked about how he experienced Jesus through the senses. He literally touched the man. He heard the man. He heard his voice. He saw him. He saw his, his figure. All, through all the, the senses, Jesus encountered was encountered by John and the rest of the apostles. So he goes on to say now in verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen. Believe it. We're eyewitnesses. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. So we want you to experience, kind of vicariously, what we experienced. So we're explaining to you everything we know about Jesus, everything we saw, heard, touched. We want you to experience as much as possible the Son of God and to believe what we believe. That Jesus, as the Son of God, has two natures. He was fully God, but he was also fully human. Don't listen to what these false teachers are teaching. Jesus had these two natures, and it was necessary because he came here as God to die. In verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. So John wrote about Jesus so others could read and also believe. That would make John's joy complete, that people were studying his word and believing, and it would make our joy complete, because we're also believing. So that was John's purpose. Turn to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, just for a moment. <clears throat> John shared all he knew and experienced about Jesus Christ for the purpose of us believing it. It says in John 20, verse 29, toward the end of John's gospel, he explains why he wrote the, the gospel as well. John 20, and verse 29, Jesus told him, because you have seen, this, he's speaking to the apostles at the time he was still on earth, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Okay, we haven't seen, we didn't experience Jesus physically like the apostles did. And Jesus said to the apostles, you know, you've been with me three and a half years here, at least during my ministry. You believe, that's great. But a special blessing on those who are going to come later, who never have the opportunity to physically see me or hear me or touch me, and that they believe. Blessed are they. So we enjoy that blessing now in our lives because we read and believe what these men wrote. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's look at the third witness, and that is the Apostle Peter. Again, one of the 12 apostles. Again, an eyewitness, a man who touched, heard, saw Jesus. Let's turn to see what he had to say. We're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Of course, Peter was a great leader in the early church, but he was a man who fully experienced Jesus. Now, Peter has a slightly different take on it, and I'll explain why. 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. He's explaining to the people, warning them about false teachers once again. And you know what? There are false teachers in the world today. We need to be on guard and know exactly what we believe. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So once again, he goes back to that basis of belief that they were eyewitnesses and they're telling us exactly what they saw. So when he talks here about the coming of Jesus Christ, verse 16, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, here he's talking about his second coming, not just his first coming as a baby in a manger and and growing up and being a part of his earthly ministry with the 12 apostles. Peter here is teaching us about his second coming. The second coming of Jesus in power is the foundation of our hope as Christians. That's what we're looking forward to. So Peter here compares himself to the false teachers of his day. His teachings are not a bunch of made-up stories and fairy tales like the false teachers use. Notice what he said in 2nd, uh, I'm sorry, 2nd Peter chapter 2 in verse 1. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the truth, the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So God's going to deal with them in good time. But he warns us not to follow them. Remember what John said? We had a sermon about the Antichrist the the past couple of times. And Jesus, uh, John said, whoever doesn't teach that Jesus is truly the Son of God is Antichrist. Okay? So we need to be on guard all the time. And when we listen to preachers, we need to weigh what they say. We need to make sure that they fully believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, he paid the penalty for our sins. Back here to Peter now in 2 Peter chapter 1. So how was Peter an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty? Now, John talked about being an eyewitness to Jesus' earthly ministry, how he touched him, saw him, heard him, etc. 
But Peter here is talking about being an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty and to his second coming. Well, hold your place and turn back to Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. We're all familiar with the story of what is called the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, Peter was one of the, the very few. There were only three of the 12 apostles who were invited to witness this. Matthew 17, verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him, notice, Peter, James, and John. Not the whole group of 12 apostles, but only these three. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured. So his figure was changed. Transfigured means Jesus, what they saw of Jesus changed at that point. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So what was this all about? Well, God, the Father, and Jesus gave a special opportunity to three of the twelve apostles to witness Jesus and what he is to look like at his second coming. And furthermore, they heard the voice of God affirming the fact that Jesus is truly his son and that instead of Elijah and Moses, our focus now should be on Jesus himself. Listen to him. Leave behind Moses and Elijah and the law and the prophets and focus now on my son. So, so Peter, and we'll turn back to 1 Peter now, chapter 2, what he is saying here is, you need to believe what I write here because I was given a special opportunity to witness not just Jesus and his manhood, but the glorified Jesus that is going to return to this earth and what he's going to look like. And God the Father affirming who he is, the very Son of God, our Savior and our Redeemer. So back here in 2 Peter 1, verse 17, it goes on to say, For he received honor and glory, this is Peter talking about Jesus, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter's eyewitness, he eyewitnessed these events, and it gave him confidence in Christ's power 
and in his second coming. So John attested to the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And that was to counter some false teachings of his day. Peter is encouraging us by saying, listen, this whole business about Jesus returning, believe it because I witnessed it. I saw it. I saw what he's going to look like at his second coming. And I was encouraged by the voice that came from heaven affirming who Jesus truly is. So Peter says we were there. We heard the voice. We saw the glory. And so we know that Jesus will return. We got a preview of his second coming. Please believe it. Peter wanted to share the hope of that vision with us before he died. And that's exactly what he did. So we have three eyewitnesses. We have Luke, who even though he didn't physically experience Jesus himself, talked to all the people who did, interviewed them in detail, made sure that the story was correct and accurate. And he wrote the whole book of Luke and the whole book of Acts, sharing that information with us to inspire us and to encourage us. And then John, because there were so many false teachings of his day, he talked about his experience with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He saw him firsthand. But he affirmed the fact especially of Jesus not only being fully God, but fully man. And then finally, Peter, his stress, his emphasis is on the glory of Jesus. He was one of the few who had the opportunity to eyewitness what Jesus is going to look like at his return and how God the Father put the emphasis on his son because it was hard for the Jews to come out of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament and now focus on Jesus himself. Let's finally look at here at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. So based on all this, based on the assurance we now have of the authority of the scripture, Peter closes by saying this, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. And we also talked about the Antichrist being the lawless, the man of lawlessness, okay? Because a lot of people are going to be confused, even some Christians are going to be very confused when he comes and starts preaching that he is God. And the true God is nothing but a fairy tale. So be on guard, be warned by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So study your Bibles. Be familiar with your Bibles. Know what it says. Know what these loyal men taught, these eyewitnesses and others. And he closes by saying, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. And I think we can all say amen to that. <laughs> well, we're going to have our communion service now. And all are certainly welcome to come forward and participate. We'll have the bread and the fruit of the vine as Mary makes final pre uh, preparations. We talked earlier in the service about being fully committed to God. That's what's expected of us. And it's a lifelong commitment. We're not just committed for a portion of our lives or for a, a moment of, of emotion or whatever you want to call it. Our dedication to God is lifelong. And it's not only going to last through our physical lives, but it's going to last for all eternity. 
Because we know even when we die, that's not the end of things. We just go to a closer and more intimate relationship with him. So not even death can break up our relationship with him. It will go on forever. So we give thanks to that and praise him for that. And you know what? By coming forward and partaking of the bread and the, and the fruit of the vine, we're demonstrating to him and to each other that we're in this for the duration. We're in this for all eternity. And it encourages us and it inspires us when we see each other come forward and, and recommit in this way. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's what the apostles did at the Last Supper. And that's what we're doing every time we have the opportunity to partake of these elements. So uh, in just a moment, we'll start the music and invite you to come forward. But let's have a prayer on these elements right now. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for our calling. Thank you for the eyewitnesses who preserved the teachings of Jesus so diligently and uh, Father, as we come to the table now, we know that this is the same table that was set by Jesus on the last night before his crucifixion. And he established these elements as being meaningful to us. We know that the bread here represents his broken body, the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. His death, he was fully God and fully man, and when he died, that death was greater than any animal of the Old Testament dying. It actually fulfilled the meaning of all those animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. He is the one true sacrifice for the sins of the, of the world. And Father, as we take that in, we're acknowledging that and believing in that. And Father, we know that the fruit of the, the vine there represents his shed blood as well, which was also a part of his sacrifice. So Father, as we come forward, we just pray that we come forward with the right attitude. It's an attitude of commitment. It's an attitude of worship. It's an attitude of rededication every time. That we say to you, God, you are our God. We believe in you. We believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit as well. And we, we look forward to the time, as Peter said, when what he saw will come to pass. The return of Jesus in glory and our change take place at that time. So Father, we love you and we thank you for these elements and the meaning that they have for us. And uh, we ask this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. <laughs>